Welcome to Advent Conspiracy 2021. I want to invite you to conspire with me this Christmas season. I want all of us to tap into our inner rebel. And let's let the upside down Christmas tree remind us of that. Now, I know that the word conspiracy is not a particularly Christmassy word. And um, I know that when we think of Christmas, we don't automatically think of conspiracy. We don't automatically think of danger and intrigue. But that's exactly what is in the original story, especially as we read it from Matthew's gospel and Luke's gospel, which we'll do today. Not only do we not think of conspiracy and danger when we think of Christmas. And not only do we not think of anything in the Christmas story as something that we need to rebel against, we're actually pretty comfortable with the Christmas story, right? The Christmas season is full of nostalgia, it's full of tradition, it's comfortable. You know, we kind of put it on every year, much like we would put on a, a really loved, well-worn, comfortable sweater. It's kind of like a, you know, a cup of hot chocolate every year. It's comfortable and familiar and warm. And we get drawn into the season. We get drawn into the, to the spirit of the season. And different things draw in different people to the Christmas spirit. Maybe for some of you, it's when the, um, when the Christmas TV specials start showing up on cable TV again or showing up on Netflix or whatever streaming uh, platform you use. Shows like Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, like from 1964, the one voiced by Burl Ives. That's been on TV every Christmas multiple times every year for 57 years. You talk about familiar, right? Or how many of us could, you know, we could close our eyes and we could visualize Linus on the stage. Charlie Brown Christmas special from 1965, right? Linus is on the stage and he says, lights please. And then he uh, recites from Luke's gospel, the Christmas story. That's what Christmas is all about, Charlie Brown. You know, um, some of us, you know, we watched these shows as children. Then we watched them with our own children and maybe some of you watched them with your grandchildren. Like just so traditional and familiar and comfortable and loved. Or maybe you like watching The Grinch, the uh, cartoon version of The Grinch Who Stole Christmas from 1966. Or the cartoon version of Frosty the Snowman from 1969 narrated by Jimmy Durante. Or maybe for you, it's, it's uh, Christmas movies, like the, the classic ones, like um, It's a Wonderful Life, uh, 1946, Jimmy Stewart. Um, you know, for many of us, these classic TV shows and these classic movies just come with such nostalgia. They're so traditional and familiar and warm. Maybe for some of you who aren't as old as I am, Maybe you've got different viewing traditions. Maybe your favorite Christmas Grinch is the one played by Jim Carrey. Maybe your 
favorite Christmas elf is the one played by Will Ferrell. Maybe your favorite Christmas family is the Griswolds. Maybe your favorite Christmas movie is Home Alone. That's a great Christmas movie. You know, we all have our warm and comfortable Christmas traditions that give Christmas that kind of once upon a time kind of feel. Jean's favorite um, Christmas movie is one I've already mentioned, It's a Wonderful Life, 1946, Jimmy Stewart. And we're kind of old school. We have that one on DVD and we watch it every Christmas. And uh, we'll have on like our pajama pants and a nice uh, comfortable hoodie, maybe wrap up in a blanket, have some popcorn and we'll watch that movie. And uh, well, what's the line from that at the end? Every, every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. Right? It's terrible theology, uh, but it's a great movie. Maybe for you, it's not so much the TV specials or the Christmas movies that gets you uh, into the Christmas mood. Maybe for you, it's Christmas music. Uh, like as soon as you hear um, Bing Crosby singing White Christmas or Silver Bells, maybe that's what just kind of draws you in. Or maybe Gene Autry, the singing cowboy, singing Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. Or, um, you know, maybe Justin Bieber singing Little Drummer Boy. I, I brought my two favorite Christmas CDs, in case you care. Um, this one is a big band celebration. It's the Steve Wingfield Band. Good Canadian boy, as Don Cherry would say. This, I love this CD. I play it a lot. Ask Gene. I play it a lot at Christmas. Gets me feeling pretty Christmassy. This is my other favorite one. This is the Charlie Brown Christmas special soundtrack. It's the Vince Guaraldi Trio. It's like amazing uh, soundtracks, great jazz music. And I listen to that a lot. And uh, these get me feeling pretty Christmassy. I love the Christmas music. For other people, maybe what kind of draws them in, or, or maybe you, draws you in, is when you see the Christmas lights and the decorations and that, because that has like a kind of a magical sort of a feel to it. And uh, speaking of Christmas lights, this building, Sobel Christian Fellowship, um, last Christmas was decorated absolutely beautifully. I think, I think every church building ought to be lit up just just short of Griswoldian at, at Christmas. I, I love that. And for a lot of people, and not just Christian people, Christian people and non-Christian people, we're pretty comfortable and familiar even with the Jesus story at Christmas, right? We see nativities, we see, you know, the story of baby Jesus and the stable and the wise men and the star. Well, for so many Christian and non-Christian, it's, it's comfortable, it's traditional. It, it, it feels like that warm, comfortable sweater uh, every year. But the fact of the matter is, Jesus was born in an incredibly dangerous time. And he was born in an incredibly dangerous place. The story of Christmas is a dangerous story. Jesus was born in the time of the Caesars. I'm going to read uh, some verses. If you have your Bible, you can have it open to Luke chapter 2. I'm going to read beginning at verse 1. 
In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to their own town to register. Well, who is this Caesar Augustus guy? Well, if you back up just a little bit, so, so Jesus is born in Bethlehem, in Palestine, which was part of the Roman Empire of the day. And the Roman Empire was huge. It stretched all the way from India to England, and it was the dominant world power of that day. And it had risen to power through many wars and assassinations and coups and generals plotting against senators. Uh, you'd be familiar with the name Julius Caesar, no doubt. Julius Caesar was a Roman general who himself, along with others, plotted and fought their way to see the Roman Republic become the Roman Empire, and Julius Caesar himself became the very powerful leader of the Roman Empire. And of course, you probably remember from school, Julius Caesar gets assassinated, 44 BC, March 15th, the Ides of March, beware the Ides of March. But uh, Julius Caesar uh, made a very interesting provision in his will. He made a provision that upon his death, his great nephew, a young guy named Octavius or Octavian, um, would become his adopted son. And uh, so upon the, the death of Julius Caesar, Octavian or Octavius would change his name to Augustus. And in 27 BC, Caesar Augustus would become um, the emperor of the Roman Empire. Now, Julius Caesar, after his death, he became deified. He was declared to be a god and he was worshiped as, as a god. And that marked a very notable shift in the religion of the empire. There's a word in Latin, religio, that is the word to describe kind of the state religion of the empire. See, before the death of Julius Caesar, the religio of the Roman empire included many gods and many goddesses. But then with the death of Julius Caesar and his being deified and declared to be God and worshiped as God, that really changed the religio of the empire to Caesar worship. And all of a sudden, everybody was required to declare that Caesar is Lord. Now, Julius Caesar uh, deified, as I mentioned, after he dies, and then his adopted son, Caesar Augustus, is the emperor. Now, Caesar Augustus never really claimed for himself that God status, but he was always drawing attention to his adopted dad and his God status, and he was very happy to let people kind of come to their own conclusion. In other words, oh, your dad is God? Well, I guess that makes you the son of God. And uh, uh, Caesar Augustus was, uh, was pretty happy with that. He never fought against that. He rather enjoyed that. Caesar Augustus was uh, smart, uh, powerful. Uh, I'm, I'm no expert on Roman history for sure, but it seems to me that it was Caesar Augustus, more than any of the other emperors who really led the Roman Empire into its greatest days, into its golden age. And um, under Caesar Augustus, there was 
uh, peace in the empire. The assassinations and the coups and the plotting had, had stopped and there was peace and this peace was so uh, noteworthy that it actually had a name, uh, Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. And so in the empire, the non-negotiable religio or state religion is that Caesar is Lord. And there's peace in the empire until there wasn't. See, what would happen uh, later on is there would be this group of people who would be followers of this rather unusual Jewish rabbi. And um, this Jewish rabbi was killed. He was crucified. And then nobody followed him anymore. But then all of a sudden, they all started following again, saying that this crucified rabbi named Jesus had actually risen from the dead. And they said that he is Lord. Not Caesar is Lord, but Jesus is Lord. In fact, something interesting, when Jesus was born um, in the Roman Empire, they had coins and, um, and, and, and other things as well that they would stamp and engrave with phrases in honor of uh, Caesar Augustus, uh, phrases like, salvation is to be found in none other than Augustus, or there is no other name given to men by which to be saved. And so uh, those phrases would be stamped on coins and hymns were written to Augustus and um, prayers were written to Augustus using those phrases. And if you're a, a Bible reader at all, those phrases might sound very, very familiar to you. Because if you fast forward to like Acts chapter four, um, Peter and John, well, they'd been thrown in jail, um, Overnight, they're hauled into court the next day and they're in religious court being threatened, being interrogated because they'd healed a lame man the day before, uh, a lame man who caused quite a stir in Jerusalem. And uh, so, so Peter and John are being interrogated and Peter is asked this question. It's recorded in Acts 4. And the, and the question Peter gets asked is this, um, by what power or in what name was this man healed? And Peter's like, are you kidding me? I get to answer that? And Peter answers that question this way, and it's recorded in Acts 4.12. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. You talk about a rebel. You talk about being defiant. You know, here's Peter, this uh, spokesman of Christianity, taking the words right off of the coins, taking the phrases right out of the hymns, right out of the prayers to Augustus, and he's using those same phrases, except he's inserting the name Jesus. You know, talk about a rebel, talk about just being defiant and absolutely saying no to the religio of Caesar worship and yes to the fact that Jesus is Lord. And this outright defiance would begin to get Jesus' followers killed. But what we don't often think of is the fact that we are a continuation of a very long line of rebels. And that's why I said we want to tap into our inner rebel. And that, by the way, has nothing at all to do with COVID. 
It has everything to do with defiantly saying no to the religio of the culture and yes to Jesus is Lord. And let's let the upside down tree remind us of that. Well, I read uh, some verses from Luke 2 and in there we saw uh, about this mandatory census and really that was um, an effort by Augustus to maximize tax revenue in the Roman Empire. So everybody had to go home to their ancestral town. Uh, so Joseph and his betrothed Mary, they've got to go back to Bethlehem because that's the ancestral town of Joseph's people. And um, Bethlehem is small, it's, it's unspectacular. It's actually about 10 kilometers south of Jerusalem. Jerusalem is where all the action is. That's where all the political action and all the religious action takes place in, in Jerusalem. Bethlehem is like this little place out of the way, uh, out of all the action. It's Bethlehem, when I think of it, I think of it like any number of villages in Bruce County. It's, it's the kind of place where, you know, like last week, if you were in Bethlehem and you want to go get a haircut, the barber shop might be closed and it says gone hunting, you know, for deer season or something like that. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's that kind of a, a place. It's got all kinds of sheep. Therefore, it's got all kinds of shepherds. And shepherds in this day, well, they were really oh, not highly considered. Um, they were really on the periphery of society so unreliable were shepherds considered to be that they actually weren't allowed to give testimony in a court of law. They were that poorly thought of. And that's Bethlehem. It's small. It's sheep. It's rednecky. It's, it's shepherds. Nothing much happened there. Unspectacular. Well, David was born there. Ruth was born there, but that was like a thousand years earlier. Nothing much remarkable had happened since. And that's where Jesus is born. I want to read some verses from Matthew chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can open it up to Matthew 2. I'll begin at verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi, or wise men as we sometimes call them, came um, from the east, came to Jerusalem. So they, they come to Jerusalem just assuming this is where the action is. This is where the, uh, the religious action and the political action is. So they go there. It makes sense. And they ask, where is the one who's been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was disturbed. That's Bible speak for he freaked out. And all Jerusalem with him, all Jerusalem freaked out with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem, in Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And, and uh, so they quote from the, the, the tiny little prophet uh, of Micah in the Old Testament. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too 
may go and worship him. So Jesus has been born. The, uh, the wise men come. There's almost certainly more than three of them and they're not kings. Um, these are pagan philosopher, astrologer, as, uh, astrology types. Um, they're from the, the priestly class or the ruling class in their Eastern culture. They've come to Jerusalem looking for the one who's been born king of the Jews. Now Herod, who is king in Palestine, so he's king over the, uh, the, the Jews in Palestine. He's been set there by Rome. Uh, Herod is, uh, is a king set by Rome over Palestine, works in cooperation with, with Rome. So he hears this news that there's one born king of the Jews. Well, he's king over the Jews in Palestine and he freaks out. And all Jerusalem freaks out with him, the text says. That would include not only the ruling class, but the, but the religious leadership as well. And so what Herod does, he gets together these Hebrew scholars and he says, hey, is there anything to this? And so they say, uh, yeah, actually there is. And they point out this prophecy from Micah about a ruler who would come out of Bethlehem and they tell Herod all about that. And then Herod calls in these wise men, these magi, calls them in secretly for a secret meeting. And he says to them, I want you guys to go, go to Bethlehem, find the child, and as soon as you do, come back to me and let me know exactly where he is so that I may go and worship him. Bum, bum, bum. If that sounds quite fishy, it's because it is. Herod had absolutely no intention of worshiping the child king. He had every intention of killing that child. And he went to extraordinary, horrific measures to, in, uh, to try and make sure that would happen. Herod is not a good guy. He's smart, he's effective, he's successful, he's powerful, but he is not a good guy. His kingdom, the king, Herod's kingdom in Palestine was, was big. It was fabulously wealthy. Um, Herod, basically his job, he's set there by Rome really to keep peace, to keep the, the religious Jews happy. That's his main job, keep the peace. Pax Romana, make sure the peace stays intact. That was his job. But he was wildly wealthy and he loved construction projects. In fact, he had um, seven palaces built for himself and each of those seven were larger than the palaces of Caesar in Rome. Just unbelievably wealthy. He um, reigned for a long time. He reigned in Palestine for 34 years. If you were asked to describe the religio of the kingdom of Herod, you might say the religio of Herod was more, the kingdom of more. He had everything, but he wanted more. He had everything, but it wasn't enough. He wanted more. His... Um, I think most notable achievement was the rebuilding of the temple. Um, this was one brilliant way that he gave the, the religious Jews in Palestine exactly what they wanted, a shiny new temple. Herod was ruthless. He had three of his own sons killed just on the suspicion that they may have been engaged in some treasonous conversations. He put to death his favorite wife. Uh, he had 10 wives. 
put to death his favorite wife. Um, he put to death at least one of his mother-in-laws that we know about. He drowned a high priest, killed several uncles, killed several cousins. In fact, Caesar Augustus was famously reported to have said one time that I would rather be uh, the pig of Herod than the son of Herod. Safer to be a pig rather than one of Herod's sons. He had everything. He had absolutely everything. There was nothing on the planet that if he didn't want it, he could have it and multiples of it. But it wasn't enough. He was always wanting more. He had everything and yet he had nothing. And isn't that a common theme in our day? People who really have it all, affluent, wealthy people, but there's a, there's a discontentment, there's an anxiety, there's something missing, there's a striving after something that just can't be reached and grasped. And that's really Herod's story. He had everything and yet he was filled with anxiety and filled with uh, greed and filled with fear and it just kind of choked, um, it choked the life out of any possible enjoyment of all the things that he had. And Jesus warned us of that. Mark chapter 8, verse 36, Jesus said, what does it really profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his own soul? Now think about everything I just said about Herod and compare that to uh, Mary and Joseph. Mary and Joseph had nothing. Like they have their baby in a barn. They literally have nothing and yet they have it all because they have the one through whom everything is created. Herod had everything, but he had nothing. Mary and Joseph had nothing, but they had everything. They bring the life of God into the world. The interesting thing is hardly anybody paid attention. 10 kilometers south of where all the action was. Jesus shows up in the midst of this kingdom of more in kind of an upside down way, in a subversive way. No lights, no fame, no buildings, no palaces, a barn. And yet Mary and Joseph experienced the most important moment of history to that, to that point. Here's, here's, here's an irony. So, you know, this time of year, the Christmas season, there is this onslaught of spending that culminates with December 25th, the very day that we set aside to celebrate the impoverished arrival of God. Think of it, this onslaught of spending culminating December 25th, the very day that we set aside to celebrate the impoverished birth of Jesus. It's ironic. Can you see that the, the Jesus story of Christmas has been hijacked? Corporations, advertisers, marketers. It's like they say, oh, you're having a religious celebration? Well, where and when? Because we would love to come and worship too. And so this impoverished birth of Jesus is used for as much financial profit as possible. 
Last month, CTV News reported on a survey that was done by the Retail Council of Canada about this Christmas 2021. And um, the survey showed that Ontario shoppers anticipate spending on average $863 on Christmas presents this Christmas. Um, there's some pent up desire to spend and to, to shop and things are expensive this year. There's supply chain issues and all of that. And, and um, so things are expensive. But that figure of $863 um, per shopper on average increases when you add in what these shoppers expect to spend on Christmas travel and Christmas food and Christmas alcohol. That $863 jumps to over $1,700 per shopper. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. May I humbly suggest that this Christmas is actually a time to spend less. You know, it's the fact that the Jesus story gets hijacked this time of year where marketers and advertisers and corporations are willing to hijack the language of worship for their own bottom line. It's very similar to the story of Herod, who says, well, go and, go and find the child. And as soon as you find him, come back to me and tell me where he is so that I may go and worship him. Of course, he had no intention of worshiping him. Herod would use any rhetoric, including hijacking the language of worship for his own ends. And after that, he, he hatches this horrific policy that results in the death of many babies in an attempt to try and destroy the Christ child. So at the heart of the Christmas story is a baby who poses such a threat to the most powerful man in Palestine that he actually kills multiple babies in hopes of destroying the child. When you think about that, Christmas starts to sound a little bit more dangerous, doesn't it? Well, uh, back to Matthew chapter two, we ended off with verse eight. Let me jump in here at verse nine. After they had heard the king, that is they, the magi, the Wise men had heard the king, they went on their way, and the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. On coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So here's, you know, here's what we've got. We've got the religious establishment in Jerusalem. Well, they're in cahoots with this paranoid king. The ones in this story who actually find Jesus are these stargazing pagans and these minimum wage shepherds who themselves are on the margins of society. You see, in this Christmas story, as we read it, if you want to find God, don't go to the temple built by the king for the religious establishment. You got to go to the barn. It's, it's upside down. 
And the religious crowds in Jerusalem were, were enthralled by the power and the fame of Herod. Meanwhile, 10 kilometers to the south in a barn, the baby king is found by those who were paying attention. God enters into the kingdom of more in a, in a subversive, upside-down way. You want to find God, don't go to the temple in Jerusalem, go to the barn. Jesus is born in a barn, the impoverished arrival of God on the scene. Jesus comes and turns this story upside down. The religio of Augustus was Caesar is Lord. The religio of Herod was more, more. What is the religio of Sable Beach, Christmas 2021? What is the religio of the community where you live Christmas 2021? Consumption, accumulation, recreation, more? Let's conspire against the kingdom of more. Let's agree to opt out of the religio of more, the religio of consumption, the religio of accumulation. And let's, as our theme for today suggests, let's spend less. Now, I'm not saying don't spend. I'm saying spend less. Shop. Buy gifts. Buy great gifts. Be generous. But let's spend less. Let's not have Christmas trees that are almost hidden from sight because of the excessive mound of presents that are in front of it. Let's spend less. Let's spend less on meaningless gifts. Do you know what I mean? I think we, we all have given meaningless gifts. It's like, well, we got to get something for Cousin Joe because he always gets something. And so oh, what should we get him? I don't care. Get him a gift card. That's a meaningless gift. It expresses nothing. It's a bother. It's an expense. Or maybe it's, maybe it's not Cousin Joe. Maybe it's Cousin Joan. Well, oh, well, go and, and get her a shirt. Doesn't matter what size. She's going to return it anyway. Just include the receipt. Like These are meaningless gifts, gifts that we just give out of habit or, or out of duty or obligation. Let's give less of those meaningless gifts. Let's, let's not allow the, the Jesus story to be hijacked. Let's opt out of being sucked into the religio of more. Let's spend less. Let's spend less on those meaningless gifts. Let's spend less on um, even up gifts. Do you know what an even up gift is? You will if you're a parent. So you've, say you've got three kids and you get gifts for each of your three children. So you're, it's a few days to Christmas, and so you're gonna wrap these gifts, and, and you notice, okay, this kid has five gifts, and this kid has six gifts, and this kid has four gifts. Okay, well, I gotta go out and get two more for that kid, and one more for that kid to even up, so everybody's got six. Well, instead of buying even up gifts, what about taking two from that kid and one from that kid and giving them to other kids who maybe don't get any gifts at Christmas or, or at, 
Or maybe put them in the closet, save them for birthday. What about spending less on those even up gifts? Or let's spend less on, if I said a gift for a gift gift, would you know what I'm talking about? Um, here's what I mean. It's December 23rd. Your next door neighbor comes and knocks on your door and they say Merry Christmas and they give to you a, uh, a box of pot of gold chocolates. You've got nothing for them. You're a little bit embarrassed. So you happen to know that pot of gold chocolates are on sale at Giant Tiger for like $8.99 or something like that. So you think, okay, they spent $9 on us. It's December 23rd, so we've still got a little bit of time. So you go out and you say, okay, well, let's spend, let's, let's up it from nine, let's say $12. Okay, there's a big poinsettia for $12. Let's get them that. That's a gift for a gift, gift. You weren't gonna get them one, but now you feel like, obligated. Let's spend less on a gift for a gift gift. Let's, let's spend, let's buy great gifts, thoughtful gifts, but let's spend less. Let's not spend excessively. Let's not feel the need to be sucked into the religio of our culture and spend up to the average of $863. Let's not feel the need to do that. You know, in installment two of this series, Advent Conspiracy, the theme is going to be give more. You might say, well, how can you spend less and give more? Well, you tune back in in uh, two weeks and we'll talk about how we can actually spend less, but actually give more. Here's one thing I want to leave you with. Um, let's, let's spend less. And what if we took that money that we didn't spend? And what if we pooled that money? And what if we did something great with it? Here's my suggestion. Let's have an offering on December 19th. And let's take the money that we don't spend on meaningless gifts and accumulation gifts and gift for gift gift gifts. Let's take that money that we don't spend and let's earmark it for our benevolent fund. Because out of that fund, we do great things. It's a beautiful fund. We give that money away uh, to meet needs in the lives of people. And we do it in Jesus' name. And it's beautiful. It's a beautiful way to express the love of God to people in our community and outside of our community who are in need. And we can do more together than we can on our own individually. So on December 19th, and you're part of Sobel Online, can I encourage you to just uh, prayerfully consider spending less and, and, um, and, and taking that and donating it even electronically designated to our benevolent fund. And uh, for our in-person worshipers on that day, we'll have, a, we'll have an offering for our Benevolent fund to see if we can top it up. I think the last time I reported to you on our benevolent fund, it was in the hole. It's, it's out of the hole now, but just slightly. So let's replenish it because it's, it's so beautiful to meet needs in Jesus' name. And we can change our world uh, through the beautiful distribution of these generously given funds in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Our Father, thank you that you so love the world 
that you gave your one and only son. And through the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, well, you changed the world. You changed our lives. I think of the words of Paul when he wrote that it is by grace we have been saved through faith, not by our own doing or by our own efforts, because we could brag about that. No, it's your grace, undeserved favor. Paul says our salvation is the gift of God, your gift for us to receive. I pray that you would help us this Advent season to not allow the message of Jesus to be hijacked. That like Peter, we would say no to the religio of more, no to the religio of accumulation and consumption and yes to Jesus is Lord. And may this be evident in our lives this season in our giving, in what we give and how we give and to whom we give. And may we, like you, give out of love. Father, you so loved the world that you gave. Would you give us eyes to see this Advent season, those who are on the margins. Lord Jesus, your arrival in Bethlehem, 10 kilometers south of the action, the religious action in Jerusalem, your impoverished arrival. Well, in that, Jesus, you declared solidarity with the poor. You showed up in a barn, homeless, a subversive, arrival completely upside down to what we may have thought would have made religious sense, but religious sense isn't Lord. Jesus is Lord. Amen. See you next time.